January 6th was not the end. It was the beginning of an ongoing coup. Today on Keeping Democracy Alive, we'll hear from someone who really knows what a coup is. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. Growing up a Jewish kid in the America of the 1950s, just a few years after the defeat of the fascists, there was the dark question, can it happen here? Back then, the pride and the strength of American democracy was universal. We were proud knowing that the people of the world looked up to us, a genuine republic, ready and able to defeat fascism and Stalinism. I had a sense that, yes, it was quite possible that someday some wannabe dictator would wrap himself in the flag. The scenario described in Philip Roth's The Plot Against America lurked in the shadows for decades. And as Thomas Jefferson said, the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. Well, we do have to be vigilant. In 2016, a number of factors led to the legitimate election of Donald Trump, and I figured, well, this is it. This was the specter of fascism. It had arrived. Then 2020 came, he lost, and it got weird. January 6th. Now, over 500 participants have been arrested, but the coup plotters remain free. Though well thought out, through well thought out stealth in the courts and in the school boards, powerful interests are determined to replace our Republican form of government with a religious nationalism, a slow coup. And it's working quite well indeed. It didn't start with January 6th, and it didn't end with January 6th. With us today to shed light on this dark area of modern history is Harrington Professor of History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, Alfred McCoy, who knows quite a bit about how political coups work. He's seen a few. Alfred, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thank you, Bert, for having me. His first book, as you may recall, was 1972's The Politics of Heroin in Southeast Asia, which sparked controversy when the CIA tried to block publication. It's now regarded as a classic on the topic. His 2006 book was A Question of Torture, CIA Interrogation from the Cold War to the War on Terror. He also published a study titled Torture and Impunity, focusing on the political and cultural dynamics of America's post-9-11 debate over interrogation. His recent book, Policing America's Empire, the United States, the Philippines, and the Rise of the Surveillance State, draws together these two strands in his research, covert operations and modern Philippine history, to explore the transformative power of police information and scandal in shaping the modern Philippine state and the U.S. internal security apparatus. And he is the author of the forthcoming book, To Govern the Globe, World Orders and Catastrophic Change, which will be released in a few weeks and can be pre-ordered at Amazon.com and your local bookstore. Al McCoy knows a coup when he sees one. From his first-hand knowledge today on Keeping Democracy, we're going to look below the surface of that failed coup on January 6th to the ongoing effort, which is anything but over, and indeed remains an extremely serious threat to America. And I must say, I like the idea of learning from history. <laughs> happens every now and then. What Professor McCoy has seen is an important, instructive, cautionary tale. Well, again, thanks for being with us. And your essay in Tom Dispatch describes what you saw as an eyewitness. Quote, 
angry loyalists storming the building while overwhelmed security guards gave way. The slavishly loyal vice president who would, the president hoped, restore him to power. The crush of media that seemed confused, almost overwhelmed by the crowd's fury. End of quote. Well, that sounds like January 6, 2021. Uh, but it wasn't. What was it? Where was it? And was it as exciting as January 6th? It was actually July 1986 at the Manila Hotel, a very famous five-star hotel in downtown Manila in the Philippines. And um, I was there. I was a researcher working for Home Box Office. They were producing a miniseries on the overthrow of the former dictator, Ferdinand Marcos. And uh, I was interviewing a bunch of coup colonels that had participated in the famous people power uprising in February of 1986 when uh, a million people massed in the streets of Manila, a great four-day drama, and it ended when Marcos flew off to exile in Hawaii. And as I was interviewing one of those colonels, he let slip that later that afternoon, uh, after a, a rally in downtown Manila, near the Manila Hotel, the mob would storm the Manila Hotel and start a coup. So uh, five hours later, I was standing in the entryway of the Manila Hotel, and there was a rally in the big park in downtown Manila, and the rhetoric was about the stolen election. Marcos had lost an election to Corazon Aquino. Uh, uh, He'd claimed victory. He'd manipulated the vote. There was a, a huge debate. In the midst of this, this coup erupted. The crowds formed in the street, and Marcus had been driven into exile. But he had his loyalists, and there were about 5,000 of them massed in that park. And a 1,000 or more of them stormed into the Manila Hotel. Uh, they checked themselves into the executive suites. And so I perched myself at a table in the, the lobby bar, and I looked down in the sunken lobby, and there was this amazing and very instructive spectacle. Uh, a couple hundred soldiers came in, there were political hangers-on, and then a call came from Hawaii. Marcos informed his loyal vice president, who then stood up at the at top of the stairs in the lobby and announced his new cabinet, while journalists scrambled to figure out uh, whether or not uh, this was a, a real coup, whether he'd really assembled a coalition that could overthrow Philippine democracy. And then about midnight, um, our, our very efficient waiter, after all, it's a five-star hotel, famed for its service, sadly appointed us that we'd drunk the bar dry and that they were closing. And then in the wee hours of the morning, uh, long after we'd stumbled home, the hotel turned off the air conditioning, turning those executive suites into virtual saunas, flushing out the rebel soldiers and the would-be cabinet. And the next morning, the, the soldiers were were sentenced to do 30 push-ups. And the whole thing, you know, you over, try and overthrow the, the, the state and uh, you get 30 push-ups, uh, which for what should be a capital offense, should be firing squads all around. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the talk radio in Manila was full of, of, you know, wry humor and the city's coffee shops. There was lots of mockery. And the whole thing seemed like a great big joke until it wasn't. Because a year later, I found myself standing in the middle of an eight-lane highway in downtown Manila in front of the military cantonment ducking bullets because the rebels were back. Because the those coup colonels, including my source, had looked at that seemingly joke event and decided, you know, it was a near miss. You know, if we just tweak a few things and do it right this time, we can really overthrow the state. 
even a failed coup has an amazingly corrosive effect on a democracy. And, um, and, and all day long, there was fighting between the, the government forces and the rebels. Uh, the Marine tanks broke through the camp, dive bombers bombed the camp. The headquarters of the Philippine Armed Forces, their sort of equivalent of a, of a mini Pentagon, went up in smoke and was reduced to ruins. And two years after that, you know, the rebels were back again, this time not just a few hundred soldiers. They had at least 3,000 soldiers. Uh, and they, they stormed through Manila for a week, and they finally got themselves an armed cavalcade, uh, tanks and trucks, and they were heading for the presidential palace. And President George H.W. Bush was on Air Force One flying across the Atlantic en route to a big summit with the Soviet leader Gorbachev on the island of Malta in the Mediterranean. He got a call and he authorized uh, U.S. Air Force jets to make a low pass over those over those rebel tanks with a clear message, you know, turn around, mm. give it up, or we'll bomb you into extinction. And Philippine democracy survived and survives to this day. Mm. But the point of, of all of that, okay, and it was an extraordinary instructive experience watching those coups play out. The point of that all of it was I realized that democracy was incredibly fragile, and it didn't take much. 5, 000, a mob of 5,000, a few hundred soldiers, then a few hundred soldiers, and then a few thousand soldiers, and democracy could tremble and fall. Uh, <clears throat> the other thing I realized uh, watching that, and particularly that Manila Hotel coup, coup as inept as it was, basically what, you know, the, the, all of us think that the coups are carefully planned every step right down the minute. That's not usually the way it happened. Oftentimes what happens is the coup plotters, as, as they did in January 6th in Washington, what they try and do is they try and make a symbolic attack, sort of shatter the, the aura of power surrounding the state, and then see what will, what will happen as the institutions start to crumble. And what they're really trying to get is just a few hours of neutralizing the security services so that those capricious, unpredictable forces can play themselves out. And maybe the state will fall from power. You know, sort of a, a judo blow to the jugular and, and watch it, it totter and fall. Okay? And that's what happened in January 6th. And Trump actually had, when you think about it, uh, as often happens in a political coup, he, he really had a, a three-part strategy, okay? Um, the first part we know, and that's come out already from the investigation being done by the U.S. Congress into the coup, was uh, essentially to get the Justice Department uh, to somehow state that the results were illegitimate and have that then reinforce his protests at the state level. But the uh, his own uh, White House counsel and the top officials in his Justice Department refused to go along, so that one failed. Um, and then uh, there was another, there was evidently in Washington, D.C., okay, um, there, there was, uh, there were a lot of rumors flying around the same time. Uh, there was a big White House meeting on, on uh, January 3rd, three days before mm -hmm. the event of January 6th, in which the, 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 the top Justice Department officials and the White House counsel refused to go along. Well, okay, that same day, <clears throat> 10 former Secretaries of Defense, all the living Secretaries of Defense of the United States, including people like uh, Dick Cheney, Trump's former Secretary of Defense, Mark Esper, Donald Rumsfeld. You know, these are serious, very conservative people. Mm -hmm. They published this amazing op-ed, okay, in the Washington Post, 
which nobody seems to remember, in which they, they warned and they told the armed forces, the soldiers, that they had no business in interfering in the electoral dispute, and that if they were to do so in any way, they would damage democracy, and they would be facing criminal charges. Uh, you know, and, and you know, I mean, you know, it, there it was in the Washington Post, 10 former secretaries of defense, because the rumors were getting so strong in Washington that Trump was maneuvering. And indeed, uh, his former defense secretary, uh, sorry, his former national security advisor, at one point, came into the White House for a meeting with Trump and advised him to declare martial law. In mm -hmm. other words, to suspend the Constitution, mobilize the military, declare a national emergency, and rule by, you know, by, by force of arms. Uh, and, and so those secretaries of national defense who, who made that statement, I think, were reacting in part to, to what, what Michael Flynn, the former national security mm -hmm. advisor whom Trump had pardoned, uh, you know, had, had proposed inside the White House, inside the Oval Office, right? You actually had a former national security uh, advisor, the, the top military official advising the president, saying that you should declare martial law. Right. Okay? Uh, and, and then the, 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 the last of, uh, of, well, not the last, but, but mm -hmm. the, the penultimate of, of, of Trump's strategies uh, uh, was Mike Pence. Yeah, he had yes. this uh, law professor who uh, who wrote a memorandum that and attracted Trump's attention, saying that the vice president was the, not just performing a ceremonial function in sort of presiding over the counting of the votes from the Electoral College, but he was, in fact, a constitutional arbiter. This has no basis in law, no basis in constitution. But this was this law professor's, John Eastman is his name, Mm -hmm. uh, he had this this theory, and and Trump bought the theory and pressured Mike Pence enormously. And what 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 the Eastman's idea was, okay, that standing up in the joint session of the Congress, as the votes came in, uh, that in a half a dozen states where there were electoral disputes, quote quote, right, where Trump's people had challenged the voting, right, that that Pence should declare that these votes were irregular, could not be counted, and then announced that Trump had a, had a majority of the remaining valid electoral college votes and was thereby re-elected president of the United States. Okay, And, and Pence actually considered it very seriously. Yes. You know, uh, he, he, had, he called former President Dan Quayle, a fellow Hoosier, fellow Indiana Republican, a former vice president, and, and sought his advice and consent for proceeding to do this. And Dan Quayle, who we never would have thought of as a, no. a great American statesman, okay? But, Legal but, expert, you yeah. Know, mm -hmm. I mean, but, you know, he, he was sort of thought of as a not-so-smart vice president. But it turned out that Dan Quayle had more experience and had learned from his experience and was a, you know, a very responsible public official. As a Democrat, I didn't particularly like him, but yeah. I must say, he did his job. He served the republic well, <clears throat> as one expects of our American officials. Mm -hmm. Most of them do. And Quayle told uh, told Pence, "You can't do it. it, it it's it's nonsense. You know, forget it." I mean, he spoke to him in you know in directly, you know, in in the idiom, basically, you know, don't even go there. You know, uh, words to that effect. 
Mm. A, a very forceful conversation. So Pence backed off. So that meant that then Trump began tweeting, you know, to his followers, and he he sent out one famous tweet that's always quote saying, "There's going to be a, a a rally on January 6th in Washington. Be there. It's it's wild. It's going right. to be wild, right. right? That wild word, and that that and 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 that that message began lighting up." These right-wing chat boards in parlor, uh, where the, the mm-hmm. right-wing people of the militias migrated after Trump <clears throat> got kicked off Twitter, and uh, after a lot of the right-wing groups got kicked off, kicked off Facebook and Twitter, and you know the three percenters and the Proud Boys assembled in their paramilitary gear, yes, ready to rumble in Washington D.C. on January 6th. But the military, unlike the Philippines coup. The military stayed out of it. Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. If you just tuned in, our guest today is a professor of history at University of Wisconsin, Alfred McCoy, who knows a lot, a lot about coups. I mean, I, I can't imagine anybody who knows more about seeing a coup in action than our guest, uh, Alfred McCoy. Now, the as you said, the um, the, the people who did the, the coup back in 1986, who tried it, were <clears throat> punished by having to do a bunch of push-ups. Uh, now, we've the, the government has arrested something like 500 of the people on the streets, the participants. What happened in, in the Philippines? Did, was it just the participants, you know, just the, the, uh, the troops on the ground? Were there eventual uh, uh, charges brought? Were there trials? What happened to the coup planners? Anything? Yeah, they got amnestied eventually. Oh, jeez. <clears throat> and that, and that, that's the usual result in these events because as members of the national security apparatus, right, they're inside a hierarchy. Uh, these guys had all, they were regular officers, which means that they, they graduated from the Philippine equivalent of West Point, which is called the PMA, the Philippine Military Academy. Uh-huh. which was actually uh, organized by Dwight Eisenhower when he was a, a military advisor in the Philippines in the 1930s when he was <clears throat> setting up the Philippine Armed Forces. So, no, they, they, got, they got away with it, and the process, which is very common for all the crimes of torture and human rights mm. uh, in Latin America, it's called impunity, okay? And, and in the Philippines, they achieved impunity. And I think we're, in terms of the U.S. military... Mm-hmm. We're moving in the same way. Okay, look. One of the things you do in 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 in, in, a, in a coup is you got to look for the personal connections. Remember, I said that that with the conventional military, there, there are two things you want from them. Ideally, you're going to get some rebel troops that have actually got guns. Okay, but that that may not happen. And in the Manila Hotel coup, they only got a couple hundred. Uh, they weren't organized. They were kind of you know uh, units that that are kind of on their own without their officers. Um, or just just low-ranking lieutenants that joined the event. Okay, so they didn't have the you know the the mid-ranking officers that really command units that mobilized in force uh, with all the mechanized gear, the tanks, the trucks, and all the rest. Okay, uh, so uh, the the one thing you really want in the military, the, the the thing that has to happen for a mob coup like we saw on January 6th or that Manila Hotel, is you've got to neutralize the security services. Make sure that you get those few hours before the security services mobilize and move out to secure 
the city, the capital city, and prevent the violence from proceeding. Okay? And <clears throat> one of the things when you study coups uh, that's very important to try and figure out is, is the few critical personal connections. Because basically people are, are taking a very high risk when they do one of these events. In a third world country, you're literally playing with your life because sometimes the coup plotters, if they fail, they get shot. Yes. Okay? Mm-hmm. So you're taking a higher risk and, and you're relying on ties to classmates, but most importantly, family ties. Okay, so mm-hmm. let's, say, let's go back to the famous 1963 coup that overthrew President Diem and left him dead in the streets of Saigon, mm-hmm. leading to the U.S. intervention, the whole Vietnam War. Okay, mm-hmm. Now that came down uh, to uh, a senior officer in the South Vietnamese military named Tran Van Don, and one of his key coup plotters was his brother-in-law, who was the commander of the military academy. So they formed a nexus that allowed them to operate within the military because they, they trusted each other, brother-in-law. Okay? In 1953, the CIA plotted a coup to overthrow the government and install a very famous Filipino man who became quite a good president named Ramon McSaisai. And so <clears throat> it turned out that McSaisai uh, uh, was married to a woman and the chief of staff of the armed forces was married to that woman's sister. Now, in Philippine kinship, there was an actual word for that relationship. Two men married to sisters are a bang, a balae in one language that I know in the Philippines, okay? Uh, and uh, uh, so that's an important relationship, and, and that was the nexus on which that coup plotting uh, proceeded. Now, in Washington, D.C., okay, the, the, the key thing we know is that as soon as the the Proud Boys and the Three Percenters and the mob broke into the Capitol. Yes. Okay, and about 800 to 1,000 people stormed through the halls of Congress, you know, um, threatening the lives of representatives, shouting, hang Pence, because okay. Trump tweeted at one point that, Trump, that Pence had betrayed him and betrayed America. <clears throat> um, now, while that was happening, uh, the, the, the D.C. police, the District of Columbia police, mm. were desperately calling the Defense Department and getting authorization to mobilize the, the D.C. National Guard. Simultaneously, in the, in the neighboring state of Maryland, which surrounds the District of Columbia, yes. Governor Larry Hogan, you yes. know, when, as soon as the events started, he quickly mobilized his guard, and he had them actually in trucks ready to take this very short drive, 45 minutes or something, from Baltimore, you know, if you're going top speed, down the highway to the Capitol. And, you know, he couldn't get authorization. And the Pentagon was refusing the authorization for the Guard to mobilize. Now, we know Michael Flynn recommended, the former National Security Advisor, as I said earlier, recommended to Trump inside the Oval Office that Trump declare martial law, right? Now, inside the Pentagon, Michael Flynn's brother, Lieutenant General Charles Flynn, was on active duty, and he was participating in at least one maybe more of those phone calls, the phone calls that said no to mobilize the troops. So that's that key kinship nexus that you look for. You know, brothers-in-law, brothers, okay, and we've got it. And Congress is not looking into, to the best of my knowledge, is not looking into into the military, to the ties that, you know, between the Flynn brothers, for example, and whether or not Lieutenant General uh, Charles Flynn needs to be court-martialed and uh, given a dishonorable discharge. And you see, that's that's where the impunity comes in. That's, the, the, that's very yeah, that's, concerning. My goodness, that that 
A, this Charles Flynn could have that much power, and B, that he's that there haven't been any charges pressed against him. How concerning! Well, he, he's he's a lieutenant general. Okay, at any given time, I don't know how many there are. Usually, there's no more than a dozen or fifteen lieutenant generals in the in the entire U.S. Army. But they're they're right at the apex. That, that's an ex, they're extraordinarily powerful. One star generals are a dime a dozen, but a lieutenant general, which I believe is a three star, okay, they're they're when, they're like gods that walk the earth yep. in, in, in military bases, okay? <clears throat> uh, so the man is enormously powerful. His mere presence will make everybody defer to him. I mean, you know, uh, it's like a bunch of children sitting around in front of their, their parents or grandparents, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Well, back okay? <clears throat> kids had their respect. <laughs> they do generally. Yeah, with all due respect, I mean, the hierarchy is such that there is respect for people that have achieved sure. these, these high ranks. For good reason. So does that? That's where the military operates. Does that indicate that the fact that he's gotten away with it, basically, and that nothing became of that, that the coup is still alive? I mean, uh, I almost said Nixon. <laughs> Trump uh, is, you know, still pressing this bizarre, absolute lie that the election was stolen, like happened in in the Philippines. Do we know? Is there uh, information on what is going on in the high ranks of the Pentagon? I mean, they obviously know that that uh, Charles Flynn was uh, did what he did. What's your what's what do we know about that? Not very much. And then, furthermore, you know, what was it that? Why did those ten former secretaries of defense, mm -hmm. very serious, very sober men, mm. feel compelled, okay, to publish <clears throat> that? Washington Post, op-ed, you know, I mean, uh, all of them, every living Secretary of mm -hmm. Defense of the United States published that. Why did they do that? What information did they have? Uh -huh. <clears throat> you know, because that's, that's never happened before in the history of the United States. Okay? That's the kind of thing that happens on the eve of a serious coup in, in some, you know, dusty Latin American mm. uh, uh, dictatorship. Okay? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, south of the border and all that sort of romantic stuff. Uh, 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 you know, um, and, and so, you know, Congress is not going, is not investigating the military hierarchy because Congress is very loath to upset the military. Yes. You know, there's this enormous deference for the institution. I mean, in many ways, that's, that's, you know, that's, that's advisable. Mm. Uh, but there, there, this is one of those circumstances when a, a really, Searching examination is necessary. Yes. But, but in, in Trump's multifaceted coup, okay, the one of the things that he worked on most consistently uh, was, you know, uh, uh, challenging the electoral results. Remember, creating that the basis so that um, that by 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 challenging by the challenging the elections by having supporters in Arizona and and Michigan, in particular, right, turn up at the at the vote counting places. Where the clerks are trying to do their job, and having you know these supposed inspectors, hundreds of people crowding there, you know, shouting, pounding on the glass, etc. That he was he was trying to challenge the results, muddy the waters, and delegitimate the electoral process, right? And that 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 of course was going to culminate in Congress when Mike Pence was supposedly going to rule the ballots from half a dozen states, including Michigan and Arizona, as invalid, and then declared Trump the president, reelected because 
he had won a majority of the valid electoral votes. Okay, and now that that discrediting of the electoral process that was the first step in many ways the cornerstone of Trump's entire strategy, because delegitimating the electoral process is the precondition for each one of the things he tried to do. You know, first of all, challenging the election, getting Mike Pence to to, to certify him the victor, uh, having the Justice Department, you know, make a false statement discrediting the election, and also motiv- motivating his followers, right, to storm the Congress on in the belief, something that he said at that rally on January 6th in the Ellipse, you know, time and time again, that this was stolen, the election was yes. stolen. Yes. This was a fraud on the American people. These Dominion computers, John Eastman, the legal advisor, stood up and, uh, on the, mm. in the January 6th rally and went on at great length explaining how there was some magic box in the Dominion computers yeah. that would turn pro-Trump votes, either not count them or turn them into pro-Biden votes. Okay? Yeah. <clears throat> and that, by the way, the Dominion computers is suing of course. a whole a bunch of people like Giuliani, uh, Giuliani's legal associates, and I'm not sure if they're suing Eastman as well. But anyway, he'll be a part of that of, of that ongoing litigation, and they're seeking seeking multi-billion-dollar settlement for the damages they've suffered as a corporation. Oh, okay. Of course. So that that slow coup, you know, challenging the legitimacy of the election as a means for transferring power. Okay, that's ongoing every day. We we we. It's become noise in the background, you know, <clears throat> kind of like traffic outside our windows. We don't hear it anymore, but it's ongoing, you know, that every Republican legislator, every Republican candidate across America has to make multiple statements challenging the, the accuracy and integrity of the 2020 presidential election, claiming that Trump was a legally elected president of the United States. This is... One of two major parties in the United States are claiming that our electoral process is fraudulent and that our president, our duly yes. inaugurated president, is is illegitimate. Okay? Absolutely amazing. And as, as Joseph Goebbels... This, this, is the fundamental ba- this is the fundamental basis. It's delegitimating the election. Yep. Is the fundamental foundation for, for the, 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 the coup that was on January 6th and the modified coup, the slow coup that's ongoing, yeah. and it may come again. And as Joseph Goebbels advised his infamous boss, say of the other what is true about yourself. And they've obviously taken that advice to heart. I mean, Trumpists are at war with democracy, and they have proven remarkably successful at circumventing such nuisances. You know, they they insist the election was stolen. Uh, they've gone through and taken over the courts and the school boards, and the, it's an ongoing thing. And you know, it may a lot of it may not be particularly public, but I was rather shocked. NBC, national TV, did a report very recently that across the country, more than three hundred election officials have been threatened. One message that they played on the air had a voice calling for the children of this official dying in f- painfully in front of this woman. Actually said that on the answering machine. I find this more than a little startling. 
So, I mean, threatening the lives of election officials, is this just something that people are doing on their own, do you think? I mean, maybe it's just gotten to that point where people are, are that angry that they see this this tyranny on the on the side where there isn't any tyranny. Heck, they see uh, uh, vaccine mandates as tyranny. It's amazing to me how they they just flip things around like Goebbels advised his boss. Uh, your comments on on the role of such tactics in 2022 and 2024. Um, yeah. Uh, first of all, I doubt that the Republican Party and even the Trump headquarters would be foolish enough to right. leave any kind of digital trail that would tie them to this. But let's be clear about what responsible political parties need to do in a democracy. Okay, that they need to 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 encourage you know, proper civic behavior, and they need to discourage it. I, I recall, um, I think it was in the 2008 election when John McCain was running against uh, Barack Obama, and he was in Arizona making his concession speech. And he was in the middle of the speech, and people started saying things like, you know, the, the crowd started shouting things about how Obama wasn't wasn't born, Obama's a traitor in America, Obama's a traitor, and yes. McCain stopped his concession speech. He said, right. my friends, my friends, Barack Obama is a loyal American, right? And, and we, can't, we can't say this. You know, you, you, you know, he's yes. a loyal American. Yes. He, he quashed it, right? He did. And, and it stopped it. The, the, the power of the presidency and those who aspire to it, both in their parties and in the nation, is enormous. <laughs> um, and... Uh, McCain, being a very responsible American, in fact, I, I regard him as a oh, uh, yeah. really as a, a as an American patriot. Indeed, uh, and uh, yeah, he he was a he was a great American. Okay, yeah, there's no question about him. Yeah, uh, uh, and uh, McCain knew it. He spotted it immediately and he stopped it dead. Even at the moment, uh, which probably one of the bitterest moments of his life, in which he lost his campaign for the presidency, um, but he had that kind of leadership. Uh, and what Trump is what Trump is not doing is as important as what he's doing by failing to to right. stop his supporters from making these calls from you know I mean if NBC News knows it you'd think that a the leader of a, of of, a, of one of the two major political parties in the United States would say this is this is this is yeah. illegal and it's morally wrong and it's damaging to the fabric of American democracy because of these county clerks and municipal clerks who preside over the electoral process, who enforce the laws and maintain the integrity of the ballot, if they're intimidated, if these professionals get driven from office and they're replaced with lesser, responsible, or partisan people, then the fabric of American democracy will be truly weakened. Mm. But Trump hasn't done that. He hasn't silenced anybody. Indeed, he's demanded that, you know, that the rhetoric of electoral fraud go on. For example, here in the state of Wisconsin, we have a, a clown show uh, of an electoral investigation going on by a former state Supreme Court justice, Michael Gableman. Um, and that happened because Trump chided the leader of the, of, of the state assembly for failing to investigate the electoral fraud. And so they've now voted hundreds of thousands of dollars to pursue this, this bogus investigation, which is just an outright embarrassment and a waste of money. But 
You know, they got to do it. And that's actually an interesting thing that, that Trump is doing. I mean, this is not only this, these claims of fraud that all the Republicans have to make. Yes. Okay? It, it's not only um, da- damaging the fabric of American democracy and delegitimating the electoral process, and indeed the electoral turnover from one candidate or one president to the next, you know, the, the critical function of, of presidential succession is being threatened by this. Okay? But the other thing that Trump has done, and it's really quite amazing, is that you know, by insisting that Republicans repeat this mantra, you know, fraudulent, right. that and, and making them all do it, it it enforces Trump's hold over the party. It gives him a lock on 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 the Republican Party, and I can't think of any situation in American history in which a defeated ex-president, okay, has had such extraordinary hold mm-hmm. on his party. Usually by their defeat, they're kind of discredited. You know, they've been repudiated by the voters. The, the party figures, oh, well, time to move on and find a better candidate who can win, not one that can lose. But Trump hasn't done that. Well, for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about uh, what a coup is from someone who really knows coups, who's seen coups in action. And what we're talking about is an ongoing, slow-moving, incomplete coup. Our guest today is uh, University of Wisconsin Professor Alfred McCoy, and he's the author of a bunch of books, including one that the CIA tried to stop, but he's got a new one coming out, uh, the Gover- To Govern the Globe, World Orders and Catastrophic Change. And one of the things that, uh, of many, that amazes me is how his followers treat him like a deity, like seriously, like a deity, they say, mm-hmm. you know, Jesus is my God, Trump is my president, and the school board elections. I mean, this is something that the Tea Party got back in the early two thousands. That taking over school boards and being involved there is part of delegitimizing the democratic process and the system. And I, I, I'm guessing that this is not a directive from uh, Herr Trump. But it's just people who are so, frankly, unfamiliar with the workings of a republic and democracy that this can happen. This really concerns me that there's this uh, mass of Americans out there who not only don't understand the democratic process, but really disrespect it. And I wonder how much of a factor this may be going forward. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, there's a... uh Bert, you're probably better qualified to answer your own comment or address your own comment as a man that follows the political present and lives in it, you know, hour by hour, day after day. Um, but let me let me sort of back away and and put on my historian hat. Yes, please. And then and, and then ask myself, you know, why is this happening? What's going on? Is this just America? Is this another example of an exceptional American? Uh, <laughs> Problem, or or is this part of a, a a broader global problem? Okay, and what I what I've learned in studying coups and and indeed empires, something I you know the, my, the the new book I have coming out to govern the globe really addresses the issue of American decline and a succession from America's current global hegemony uh, and and a, an American world order, kind of liberal world order, to a to 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 Beijing rising and nice. replacing the American world order with a a more con- a neoliberal uh, international yes. regime. Mm. Okay, so you know, wh- 
when you look through the historical record, look back over the past century, okay, going back to, let's say, 1919 to 1923 in Italy, uh, and then uh, Italy, uh, Germany, uh, France, Spain, the Soviet Union, and now the United States, one thing that happens, when imperial power begins to decline, when a great power begins to lose that international privilege and position, tensions build up. First of all, there's often a a military defeat. Think of our long-running war in Afghanistan. There are economic pressures. Think of the globalization the deindustrialization of the United States as China rises and their industrial complex beggars our own, okay? And then there's the, 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 the kind of the morale of the society that, in which ordinary citizens, you know, think of themselves, you know, feel a little buoyed in their lives. You know, I'm, I, I may have some crummy job, but hey, I'm British or I'm Spanish or I'm French and we are world leaders and therefore... Uh-huh. I am part of this great international enterprise. One's chest swells with pride uh-huh. in one's nation and its important role on the global stage. So when all of this starts to go, when the economy turns bad and economic pressures build, when military reverses and their humiliations and stresses occur, and when that loss of pride happens, it reverberates inside the society. And all the societies I mentioned, Italy, France, uh, uh, Spain, <clears throat> the Soviet Union, you know, they all face coups, serious coups, uh, in which the, the constitutional order trembles and sometimes it falls. Right. You know, even the United Kingdom, you know, had a, you know, a, a two coup attempts against the labor government of Harold Wilson in 1968 and 1974 amidst their decolonization that just reverberated through the society, demoralized it humiliated it, and Britain reacted with two abortive coup attempts, not quite as pronounced as our January 6th, but serious nonetheless. And so it happens in a surprising number of societies that are going through a process of imperial decline. And so this is a manifestation of that ongoing loss of American power. Mm. And that's why, and, and, and you know, the, in these situations, because it's the the driver is okay. There's economic rationality, but the military defeats and the loss of national pride is emotional. Yes. Okay. So it's inherently irrational. <laughs> so in this process, what you see is, you know, kind of of a series of irrational actions. Things will get kind of crazy as they are in the United States right now. All these societies go through this period, and and. These demagogues emerge. Yes. Um, they can emerge. Mussolini emerged in the midst of, of this crisis in Italy, uh, this perceived loss of a, Italian power <clears throat> in the aftermath of World War One, and he played upon that. And he, you know, had the famous march on Rome, establish a fascist dictatorship. Uh, you know, in the midst of the crisis, the long wind down of Spain's grand global empire, and the severe crisis of their attempted conquest of what became known as Spanish Morocco. The head of the Spanish Foreign Legion, Francisco Franco, mm. you know, mm. crossed from Africa to Spain, fought the civil war and established a fascist dictatorship mm-hmm. and overthrew a, a democratic republic. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so so, you know, as you know, our, our the imperial decline is not like whoops, one day you wake up and it's all over. It's a long 
painful process, particularly when you're you're the most powerful empire in the history of the world. And that's a, that's a, that's the process that I examine in this new book. And the new book again is called "To Govern the Globe: World Orders and Catastrophic Change." And I'm thinking about just a couple of days ago, uh, Senator Josh Hawley said that he was concerned about loss of masculinity, that our masculinity is under threat. And that makes me, I mean, it sounds like exactly what you're talking about. It's emotional. And a lot of the people who, you know, came out uh, for Trump and for the uh, for the coup, uh, you know, it's about we're powerful, you know, and, and this it's like a, a personal emotional insult to their own masculinity. And this decline of empire, I, I people don't want to see it. I, you know, I, I don't like empires. I think they're, you know, never a good thing. Uh, but people don't want to believe. They don't want to accept that there's a, 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 that the empire, A, that we even had an empire, B, that, it, that it's in decline. And I wonder, you know, it's, as you say, it's emotional. People, and I think it, it touches on and it plays out with people who feel left out. The people in America who live in less densely populated populated areas feel like, well, the Democrats don't care about us. And that we have, you know, they don't, Trump is a powerful, you know, figure. He's, it doesn't matter about the laws and the elections. He is sent by God. And, you know, I wonder, <laughs> their elections coming up 2022 and 2024, it seems like a lot of the actual Republicans, the John McCain's, you know, the, the old genuine conservative Republicans, what they're doing now? Are they still so cowed about this? And what about the place of, of emotion and this macho, you know, you can't, you know, step, step uh, Bert, in you, America. You, 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 you said two magic words, okay? What's that? Masculinity, the loss of masculinity and macho. And in the, the crisis of empire, uh, really go to <clears throat> the, the, the male identity. Yes. Okay, so for example, the greatest crisis of the British Empire, the British dominated the globe roughly from 1815 to 1914. Yes. And the, the first sign of British decline was a, a now-forgotten called the Boer War, mm, mm-hmm. in which Britain was trying to defeat the Boers, the former, the, the Dutch settlers in, in South Africa, the, the whites, the people that gave us apartheid and all that, okay? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <clears throat> okay, and uh, the, the British were trying to defeat these Boer states that were in, uh, in, uh, in, in, the, in central South Africa. Uh, and at one point, the Boers were uh, surrounding uh, a city in South Africa, and uh, the one of the British officers there was was disconcerted by the poor state of ordinary British soldiers, feeling that industrialization and empire had turned the British yeomanry, the the vigorous rural workers on the estates, uh-huh. into these kind of you know uh, uh, hollow-chested, skinny, uh, weak little uh, uh, men, and that that. Britain need to remasculize, and that man was named yeah. Baden Powell. And the movement that he started to remasculize the Brit- the British people and the British Empire was called the Boy Scouts. Okay, and <clears throat> in the aftermath of Vietnam, in which you know was a searing loss um, for the uh, for the United States, it was a major blow, kind of akin to the Boer War for the British, although the British eventually won. 
through absolute atrocities, but that's another story. Yes. Anyway, in the aftermath of Vietnam, which was this grinding, humiliating defeat, you know, uh, the world's greatest superpower was defeated by a, you know, a, a small developing nation. And of course, you know, let's, you know, mm-hmm. if the average American was 5'11 and about 180 pounds, the average Vietnamese is about 5.55 and maybe 130 pounds. Right. So, you know, big masculine Americans lost to these, you know, little Vietnamese, smaller Vietnamese, you know, I mean, the physicality of it was very, was very clear. And that's where the militia movements all came from. There was this, this, this sense of searing loss of American masculine pride from the defeat of Vietnam that reverberated through society. And that's the period in which all these militia movements, which are the lineal antecedents of the the three percenters and the proud boys. That's where that came from. That whole movement of these guys going off in the countryside and training and remasculizing themselves kind of think of the militia movements as adult boy scouts. Okay. And so that's what you're absolutely right, Bert, that as empires decline and this, this puff chest of pride of being a great, a member of a great nation that stands tall on the world stage. Right. And as that erodes, that sense of pride, that sense of masculine identity, that sense of strength and personal worth, and as the you know, particularly as your as your paycheck goes down and economic pressures start, and all this comes together, and suddenly you get these irrational reactions like we're experiencing now. Absolutely amazing, and and there's so many aspects of it. I mean, the fact that they. They're so, these macho men are so threatened by uh, feminism, for example. Uh, they, you know, there's no reason to be threatened by that, but but they are. And there's this thing, I don't know if you've heard of it, called uh, incel, involuntary, yep. in, <laughs> you know, and stand riding tall in the saddle, you know, the John Wayne image. We got, I don't know. How long it takes to die a slow death, and what we can do about it. I mean, you know, the the idea of an election. Well, you know, the fact is, Biden won quite legitimately. But how could the idea of this strong man, this powerful man, losing? It's incomprehensible to them. So, you know, I wonder. A, what the Republicans are likely to do now. I, I feel like they're between a, the old rock and a hard place, the non-Trump Republicans, if there are any. And what Democrats can do, or, or if it's just, uh, pff, you know, is there? Uh, this is emotional stuff. It, it kills me when Democrats say, well, we need to explain our positions. We need to message our positions better. It's emotional. Your, your thoughts on that, Professor McCoy? Yeah, um, <clears throat> Yeah, what you're, I mean, I think what you're, you're getting to is a, is a couple of things. Uh, first of all, you know, more or less what to do. First of all, ongoing U.S. decline is, is already set, okay? Uh, back in 2012, the National Intelligence Council, which is the supreme analytic body of the 16 U.S. intelligence agencies, you know, um, everything, uh, well, everything from the Defense Intelligence Agency to the CIA, okay? there's this National Intelligence Council. Uh, and they issue these reports every four years on sort of the state of the world and the direction of the United States. In 2012, they issued a report and said that by 2030, okay, uh, China will be a larger economy than the United States. 
the epicenter of world power will shift away from essentially the North Atlantic, Europe and the United States, and will shift to Asia. And they said, why? They said, well, and they did it in a PowerPoint slide. They said uh, during the 19th century, when Britain was rising, uh, their share of the gross world product, okay, all the things you know, bought and sold in the entire world, increased 1% per annum okay, during the period of British rise. And then during the period of America's rise from 1900 to 1950, our slice of the world pie went up 2%. But between 2000 and 2020, the Chinese slice of the world pie went up 5%. And that therefore, by 2030, they said, the Chinese economy will be bigger than the United States economy. And how well, can that be? And, and, and it's actually, if you do what's called purchasing power equity, you know, the McDonald hamburger index, you know, like how much does it take to buy a McDonald hamburger? In other words, what you can actually buy for your dollar? Well, the Chinese economy actually, in terms of purchasing power equity, passed the U.S. economy in about 2014, 2015. But by 2030, if current trends continue, right. that's a hypothesis, the Chinese economy is going to be about 40% bigger than the U.S. economy. Okay? Mm -hmm. They're already the world's workshop. They're, oh, yeah. they're their industrial economy is twice the size of ours already. They're, you know, okay, so, so and the, the U.S. spends about 3% of its gross domestic product on defense. And China spends about 2%, a little higher. But again, you know, it's, it's probably more. Yeah, it's really probably about the same as us. So as the Chinese economy gets bigger than the U.S. economy, their defense budget is going to grow. And already, if you read the reports from the U.S. Navy uh, and, uh, and RAND Corporation and all the rest, already there are a number of areas in which the Chinese military is, is better than the U.S. military. They're already making innovations, all right? And, for example, satellite communication security, they're ahead of the United States in that, okay? And so their military, by 2030, is going to be as powerful as the U.S. military. They won't be a global military presence. That's not their, their design. Uh -huh. that's, uh, that's not their strategy. But they're going to be dominant in the Western Pacific, and they're going to be vying for dominance in the Indian Ocean. Okay, and so, so you know, that, that we can't change. That's ongoing. There are deep historic forces driving that, okay? Uh, and that's beyond the ability of any citizen or indeed any society to change. That's a given. Okay, we're in the midst, and I explain this in my book, To Govern the Globe, we're in the midst of an historic transition from an, a, a near century of American hegemony to now but it's being called a Chinese century, although mm. we can go into that. We can maybe have a future conversation yeah. about the future. <laughs> um, that's not going to last very long, but it'll last a few decades anyway. And so the, 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 as, that, as that continues to go, as these emotional loss of yes. uh, a, a sense of pride in America being the world leader, as that, as that wanes and the economic pressures, of this global economy in which we are becoming the second, not the first power, wanes. And the critical thing that's going to happen when the U.S. dollar is no longer the de facto right. global reserve currency, which it's been since 1944 in the Bretton Woods Agreement that set up the whole international economy that we've been living on under, under since 1944. When that happens, okay, there are going to be all kinds of economic pressures on the United States. 
Okay. Uh, and this delicately balanced economy we have now is going to get very troubled. Okay. So, so there's worse to come. Oh, great. And, and that's going to ramify through the society, producing more of these irrationalities, mm. more of these pressures on American democracy that you've been talking about. Oh, lovely. So this, this kind of pressure is obviously going to be emotional reaction to that. Wait a minute, they can't do that. We're tough. We're the biggest. We, you know, we're America. They can't do that. The adjustment to that is, is very difficult, and uh, it's, it's not emotional. And somehow, phew, I think we have to start to do that. And, you know, the Republicans are doing whatever they can now to, to keep and demand that they deserve, they have a right to be in charge. They're going to gerrymander. They feel like they can do anything at all, voter suppression methods that are, you know, more subtle than uh, the Ku Klux Klan, but they're still voter suppression methods. They feel like they have a right to rule, and that is something really dangerous. Uh, but uh, we could talk a lot more, and I hope we will in the future. Professor Alfred McCoy, who, again, his, his new book uh, coming out is uh, To Govern the Globe, World Orders, and Catastrophic Change. We're talking about coups and what, what uh, went into the beginning of the coup process here, because uh, it ain't over yet. Thank you so much for being with us today, and, uh, boy, we got to learn from history, which we hardly ever do. It's been really interesting. Thank you so much. I hope we can... I'm sure we can do this again, Professor Alfred McCoy. Thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. It's quite a task to keep democracy alive. Thank you. This has actually been a, a really interesting conversation, so thank you. A, a lot of uh, you've, you've, you've helped me do some, some interesting new thinking, so I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Keeping Democracy Alive. Twice a week, every week. Subscribe. Don't miss a single one. On the website, Apple Podcast, Spotify, or Stitcher.